Hello and welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman and joining me today is Linda Carlisle. It's Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, and we have some great stories for you. In this episode, we will talk about Ukraine successfully repelling Russian air attacks, a large convoy of suspected Wagner fighters arriving in Belarus, intensifying heat waves in the Northern Hemisphere, evidence of harmful chemicals in the blood of pregnant women and the cutthroat world of British poetry and the politics behind selecting candidates for the Poet Laureate position. Story number one. According to Al Jazeera, Ukraine's air defense systems in the Odessa region and Kiev successfully repelled Russian air attacks. Al Jazeera reports that Russia conducted a second night of air raids on Odessa and targeted Kiev, while explosions were witnessed in the Russian-annexed Crimean port city of Sevastopol. The Ukrainian Air Force detected the launch of Russian Kaliber missiles from the Black Sea. Videos and witness accounts, as reported by Al Jazeera, depicted the aftermath of the attacks, revealing significant damage to buildings. These attacks on Odessa were carried out in response to a blast on a bridge connecting Russia to Crimea, which Moscow attributed to Ukraine. Al Jazeera has reported that Moscow's objective was to disrupt the export of grain from Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Although residents of Sevastopol also reported explosions, there is a lack of further details or independent confirmation. The Ukrainian Air Force issued a warning regarding a possible Russian cruise missile launched from the Black Sea. Pro-Kremlin military bloggers, as stated by Al Jazeera, described the attacks on Odessa as massive. Russia's defense ministry claimed that these attacks were a retaliatory strike for the bridge incident. It's terrifying to think about what's happening in Ukraine right now. The use of airstrikes, missile attacks, and drones... It's like warfare is taking a whole new turn. Wouldn't you say, Linda? Yes, Mark. It's a disturbing trend. These modern warfare tactics, while not entirely new, have become increasingly prevalent in recent conflicts. They're reshaping the battlefield in profound ways. The technological advancements, while aiding precision, also open up the risk of widespread destruction and civilian casualties. And I can't help but think about the ripple effects— the disruption of grain exports from Ukraine, for instance, that's going to hit hard, isn't it? We often overlook these economic repercussions. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. Disruption in its grain exports could potentially exacerbate global hunger issues. It's not just about the immediate physical damage, but also the long-term economic impact. Right. And it feels like we're seeing this pattern in other conflicts, too. How different is this from previous wars, Linda? Quite different, Mark. In the past, wars were fought on clearly defined battlefields with soldiers facing each other. Now the lines are blurred. Airstrikes, missile attacks, drones, these can target anywhere, anytime, making the entire region a battlefield. And the impacts are felt far beyond the immediate geographical area. That's a chilling thought. But, uh, let's not forget the people caught in the middle of all this. The civilians. It's heartbreaking. The ethical dimensions of this type of warfare are deeply troubling. The impacts on civilian infrastructure and life are immense and tragic. It's a reminder that in the face of technological advancements in warfare, the protection of civilians must remain a priority. Story number two. Satellite images have revealed that a large convoy of suspected Wagner fighters from Russia has arrived at a new camp in Belarus, as reported by the BBC. The images show dozens of vehicles entering the camp at Cell, a disused military base in southern Belarus. The camp appeared shortly after an agreement was reached to end Wagner's mutiny against the Russian military, 
with part of the agreement involving the relocation of Wagner troops to Belarus. Previous satellite images showed the erection of about 300 tents at the camp. Telegram channels linked to Wagner have also posted footage showing the group's flags being lowered at its main training base in Russia. The leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, has stated that Wagner is currently in their camps in Belarus and can be called upon to defend the nation if needed. The exact number of troops relocating to the camp is unclear, with estimates ranging from 600 people to 31 large vehicles, as stated by the BBC. Do you think, Linda, these recent movements of Wagner fighters into Belarus could signal a new paradigm in modern warfare? It seems like we're seeing an increasing reliance on these private military companies. This is not an isolated incident, but rather part of a growing trend. Mercenaries and private armies have been part of warfare since ancient times, but what we're seeing now is a shift in their status and role. In the past, they were often seen as rogue elements outside the control of governments. But now, they are increasingly integrated into the military strategies of states. So these aren't just guns for hire anymore, eh? They become, what, an extension of national armies? In some ways, yes. And this has profound implications. For one, it blurs the lines of responsibility and accountability in warfare. If a private military company commits atrocities, who is held responsible? The company, the state that hired them, or the individuals themselves? It's a complex legal and ethical minefield. That's a scary thought. And in this case, with the Wagner Group's involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war, it's even more alarming. Could we see more of this proxy war style of conflict? It's certainly a possibility. Private military companies provide a sort of deniability for states. They can influence conflicts indirectly, without officially getting involved. It's a way to circumvent international laws and norms. But as you mentioned, it's a very alarming trend. Yeah, it's like a shadow war. Well, on a lighter note, let's hope this trend doesn't continue. Thanks for the insights, Linda. Of course, Mark. It's always important to shed light on these complex issues. Story number three. A heat wave in the Northern Hemisphere is intensifying, leading to red alerts being issued for parts of Europe. The World Meteorological Organization, WMO, has warned of an increased risk of deaths as extreme weather grips Europe, Asia, and the United States. Southern and Eastern Europe, including Italy, Spain, Croatia, and Greece, are experiencing high temperatures, with some regions reaching record-breaking levels. The heat wave is expected to continue, with temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, persisting for a prolonged period. The WMO, as reported by Al Jazeera, estimates that approximately 61,000 people died in heat waves in Europe last year. The heat waves, along with wildfires and flooding, have underscored the urgency of climate cooperation between major greenhouse gas polluters, such as the U.S. and China. Scientists emphasize the need for governments to take drastic action to reduce emissions and mitigate the frequency and severity of heat waves. Might I say, Linda, these escalating temperatures are really turning up the heat figuratively and literally, on the global climate crisis. The fact that places like Sardinia could see highs of 47 Celsius, that's 116 Fahrenheit, is mind-boggling. It's a stark reminder of how urgently we need to address greenhouse gas emissions. The human cost is staggering as well, with the World Meteorological Organization warning of an increased risk of deaths. An estimated 61,000 people may have died in heat waves last year in Europe alone. 
The impact on public health is significant, and it's not just about the immediate risk of heat-related illnesses, but also the longer-term impacts on mental health, productivity, and overall quality of life. You couldn't be more spot-on, Linda. And you know, it's not just Europe. We're seeing the same story play out across Asia, and here in the U.S., the heat wave is intensifying all across the Northern Hemisphere. This isn't a localized problem, it's a global crisis. It's high time world powers like the U.S. and China lead the way in taking drastic actions. And these heat waves don't just bring high temperatures. They're also associated with other extreme weather events. The wildfires in Greece and Switzerland, the flooding in India and South Korea all coincide with these intense heat waves. It's a domino effect, and we're only seeing the beginning if we don't act now. Right you are, Linda. And let's not forget the impact on the economy. Tourism takes a big hit when you have temperatures soaring like this. Not to mention the strain on our power grids with everyone cranking up their air conditioners. Absolutely. And it's not just tourism and energy. Agriculture is deeply affected too. High temperatures and droughts can seriously damage crops and livestock, threatening food security. And this comes at a time when many are already grappling with the economic impacts of the pandemic. It's clear that climate change is not a distant threat, but a present crisis. Story number four. A study conducted by researchers in California, as reported by The Guardian, has found evidence of harmful chemicals commonly present in the blood of pregnant women. The study identified per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, including a type known as PFOS, in the blood samples of 97% of the 302 pregnant participants. PFOS has been linked to serious health problems, including birth defects. Other chemicals found in the blood samples included abnormal fatty acids and chemicals used in pesticides, medications, and plastics. The researchers warned that these chemicals pose increased health risks for both mothers and their babies, including gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and pregnancy-related hypertension. The study serves as a wake-up call for policymakers to address the impact of plastic chemicals and PFAS on maternal health. The research comes as new testing commissioned by the Environmental Working Group found PFAS in the drinking water of several U.S. cities. This really is a wake-up call, isn't it? The fact that 97% of the blood samples from pregnant women contained PFAS, a substance associated with serious health issues, is alarming. But I think it's important to remember that we're talking about chemicals that were used extensively in various industries. Phasing out these forever chemicals is more complicated than it sounds. I agree. It's a wake-up call, Mark. But not just for industry or the policymakers. It's a wake-up call for all of us. We need to reconsider our consumption habits. The study findings suggest that we are surrounded by these harmful substances in our day-to-day -day lives. They are in our food packaging, non-stick cookware, and even in the water we drink. The point here isn't just about phasing out these chemicals, but also about reducing our dependency on such products. Well, I see where you're coming from, Linda, but we have to consider the practicality of your proposition. The fact is, these chemicals were used because they were effective and affordable. Yes, there are alternatives, but they may not be as efficient or cost-effective. Plus, it's not just about consumer products. These chemicals are used in firefighting foams, industrial sites, and even sewage treatment plants. Are we ready to overhaul our entire system? Mark, I'm not suggesting an overnight switch. It's about gradual but deliberate change. It's about being informed and making conscious choices. 
Remember, these are not just numbers or abstract concepts we're talking about. These are real women, real babies being affected. The U.S. already has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world. We can't afford to ignore the potential health implications any longer. I agree, Linda. The human aspect of this issue is paramount. However, let's not forget that companies like 3M and DuPont have agreed to settlements that will provide funding to test for these chemicals and remove them from drinking water. The EPA is also working on preventing new PFAS chemicals from entering the market. So, it's not like nothing is being done. A. Some action is being taken. But let's not forget, it took us more than two decades to reach this point after the phase-out agreement with 3M. And despite all these measures, we found PFOS in maternal blood samples. So while it's good that we're making progress, we need to ask ourselves if it's enough and if we're moving fast enough. Story number five. Newly released government documents from the National Archives, as reported by The Guardian, reveal the cutthroat world of British poetry and the politics behind selecting candidates for the Poet Laureate position. The records show that John Betjeman was dismissed as a candidate in 1967, described as a songster of tennis lawns and cathedral cloisters, with a nostalgic and backward-looking style. W. H. Auden, who is regarded by some as the best candidate, was ruled out due to his U.S. citizenship and a pornographic poem published under his name. The post eventually went to Cecil Day-Lewis, but after his death, Betjeman was again considered and eventually appointed. Auden was once again a top contender, but his eligibility was questioned due to the explicit poem. The documents, as stated by The Guardian, provide insights into the opinions and assessments of various figures in the poetry world during the selection process. Could you believe the politics involved in appointing the poet laureate back in Betjeman's day? It's like a real-life Game of Thrones with all the backstabbing and politics. You've got Auden, arguably the best poet of his time, disqualified over a raunchy poem and his U.S. citizenship. And then there's Betjeman, first dismissed as a songster of tennis lawns, before finally landing the gig. It's fascinating, don't you think? It is interesting, Mark, but I wouldn't exactly compare it to Game of Thrones. The selection process for the Poet Laureate is indeed political, but it also reflects the cultural values and biases of the time. Auden's disqualification due to his gobble poem and American citizenship were influenced by the societal norms and nationalism of the era. As for Betjeman, though initially dismissed, his eventual appointment points to the establishment's acceptance of his nostalgic and backward-looking poetry as representative of English culture. Oh, come on, Linda, you're making it sound like a tea party. It was cutthroat, plain and simple. And let's not forget the biases. Poets being called unstable or heavily on the bottle or dismissed for being a poetic hack. Doesn't sound very cultural to me. I'm not denying the harshness or the biases, Mark. My point is, the process was reflective of the society and the establishment's perception of what a poet laureate should represent. It wasn't just about the best poet, but the best representative of English culture and values, as they saw it. And while it may seem unfair or harsh by today's standards, it's important to understand it in its historical context. Fair enough, Linda. But I still think the whole process could have been more transparent and fair, don't you think? After all, we're talking about a position that's supposed to celebrate the beauty of poetry, not a political office. I agree, Mark. The process could have been more transparent and less biased. Thankfully, times have changed, and I hope the process today is more democratic and inclusive. Poetry, after all, should be a celebration of diverse voices and experiences, 
not just those that fit a certain mold. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.